Hi guys, welcome back to the Common Room Couch, where each week Essence and I ask the other a burning question playing to each other's strengths, where we then follow up with some healthy debate, discussion, and follow-up questions. As always, we want to encourage our listeners to get involved with the conversation, so please reach out to us if we misspeak, misquote, or misunderstand a source we used. We'll include these fun facts or corrections in future segments. Cue intro music. All right, we're back. So a different fact. Essence, do you want to go first this time? It doesn't have to be a fact. Like Essence gets stressed. <laughs> it can just it can just be something like how many siblings do you have? I have three younger siblings and let's see. I probably have a fun story about them. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> nope. They're boring. Okay. I guess my fun fact slash story is that I have three younger siblings and I have been obviously quarantined with them for a while, and at first it was annoying, but then I realized that it will be like the last time that all of us are in the same place, cooking dinner together, playing games together, etc. for a while, and it's been really fun with them. Love that. That sounded sarcastic, but it wasn't. That was just like, (laughs) love that, because I think I said the same thing in like our intro video about my family. My fun fact slash story, I have two dogs. If you do know me personally, you'll know that I love dogs, like, more than anything. So my dogs are Cavalier Poodle mixes. They are brothers from the same litter. Their names are Duke and Rex, and I thought I would share the story of how they were named because normally when we tell people, they think we're so creative as a family to give our dogs these matching Regal-esque names. That's not the case. (laughs) We were trying to figure out what to name them, and we wanted their names to go together. And I had a friend who suggested, oh, I think we wanted literary names or like historical figures, but like Brutus and Caesar were really all we could think about. And since Brutus kills Caesar, that didn't really seem to be a good (laughs) choice. So I had a friend who suggested naming one dog Jack and one dog Daniels, which would be funny but my brother's name is Jack and my dad's name is Daniel. And so (laughs) that seemed like a bad choice. So then the same friend, after I told her that, suggested Jackson and Lewis for St. Louis and Jacksonville because we moved from St. Louis to Jacksonville. Again, Jackson sounded just a little too close to Jack. So, but I told my mom and she really liked that idea. So then we said Raleigh and Durham because I was born in Raleigh and Jack was born in Durham. Then we realized I was born at Rex Hospital and Jack was born at Duke Hospital. <laughs> and so hence their names. But it is nice when people think that we were um, really fancy individuals who decided to give her <laughs> dogs magic regal names. That's good. <laughs> like Thanks. Okie. Dokey. So now that the weekly wrap has wrapped up, haha, cue fake laugh track music. <laughs> we are going to start our sixth episode, I believe. Correct? Yes? Yes. Black Lives Matter and social media activism. And just to preface, 
We will be having a separate conversation in the future on defund the police. We just thought because Black Lives Matter coinciding with quarantine this year, there was a lot of social media activism going alongside it. And so this would be a really interesting, well, I guess I gave away what the connection was. (laughs) But that's why we may mention defund the police in this episode, but that will have its own segment in the future. So if you are wondering while you're listening to it, why that's not being brought up as much as it might have been if this had been an episode focused on both. So my question to Essence, how has the Black Lives Matter movement changed since its conception? Why do you think 2020 was a year where it really seemed to gain ground, become more widely accepted? And how can the movement transcend the year in the summer of 2020 and continue to make progress? And I think your last question is kind of the important one here because I think Black Lives Matter has really taken on more than just being a hashtag and more than just being a movement from a couple of years ago. I think it's completely changed the game of what social activism can look like in future years. Um, and I think what's special about Black Lives Matter beyond its message is that it's a very decentralized and grassroots movement and started just from people that were activists in their daily lives and fed up with the system. And then poured that outrage into what was originally a hashtag but then has become a movement several years later. I think that's what's really special about it and what resonates with a lot of people. So just to kind of get into the people, and I think it's important with Black Lives Matter and everything we're talking about to like say the names of the people who are responsible. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to use a lot of names in this episode, but I think it's really important just to give people credit for things that they're starting. So I just kind of want to start with a little bit of history as to why this movement all of a sudden kind of picked up. And in 2013, Alicia Garza, who was already a activist in her hometown, Oakland, um, she was kind of off-put by the reactions to George Zimmerman being acquitted of murdering Trayvon Martin. And she kind of saw two responses in which she describes as being social justice cynicism and respectability politics. So basically that she felt that a lot of Black people were feeling disenfranchised by the justice system and that there would never be true justice for Black men and that white men would always be able to get away with this type of behavior. Or she saw the opposite spectrum in which she saw people were looking into Trayvon's history, his family, etc. And saying that he had somehow done something wrong or his parents had done something wrong to deserve being murdered. And her response to all of these posts was this love letter to Black people. And her final words are, Black people, I love you. I love us and our lives matter. And her friend, Patrice Cullors, who also is an activist, she's an anti-police violence and abolition activist in Los Angeles, responded to the post with the official hashtag, Black Lives Matter. And the other person that's really attributed to this movement is Opal Tometi, who was also friends of the other two. And she also is, is a activists, which I think is important in pointing out that they all do activism in their communities. This wasn't just like a sudden thing that happened. Uh, And this all really started from the grassroots. And so they make those posts into the first official post. And for many months, it just kind of was dormant. It was her purpose wasn't to start necessarily a movement at first, but it became one. And in 2014, when two more Black people are murdered, Michael Brown, um, and Eric Garner, it resulted in huge protests across the country in Ferguson, Missouri. 
And in the second half of 2013, um, the hashtag appeared on Twitter like 5,000 times. And the next three weeks after their murders, the hashtag was used almost 60,000 times. And more weeks later, the hashtag was used over 1.7 million times. And so you're seeing that social media activism really started out slow, but picked up very quickly as this kept happening around the country and more people were using social media. And I think this movement has always started with social media in a lot of cases and a lot of on the ground work. And I think Michael Brown, his murder became so well publicized because people actually recorded a lot of the police misconduct that had happened. They recorded his body laying on the concrete for hours. And after that was posted on social media, protesters immediately took to the streets in Ferguson. And just as they had done for Trayvon Martin. And again, Black Lives Matter's membership keeps growing. And I say like their membership keeps growing, but really their support keeps growing because it's not an official organization. And and that's kind of the point. It was always supposed to be decentralized from the beginning. A question I have, I guess kind of what you were talking about in gaining supporters. Why do you think, I feel like obviously many white people have always like supported Black Lives Matter, but I feel like 2020, the calling for white allies mm-hmm. to defend. And I don't know if you have any ideas on why 2020 was that year, that all of a sudden it was white people walking down the street wearing Black Lives Matter shirts. I don't feel like that was as prevalent prior to 2020, but I've seen yeah. so much of it now. Yeah, and I think 2020 marks kind of the new phase of Black Lives Matter. Not a new phase, but a new resurgence of it. And I think with the murder of George Floyd also happening, and a series of other murders that also happened around the same time. I think, one, the series of, and again, in 2016, the resurgence was from Eric Garner and Mike Brown. And again, we're seeing in 2020, like multiple murders that are publicized again. Mm. Extremely weird time also in our history of being in a global lockdown. And there really being nothing to do besides like look at social media and look on the news. Well, I was also going to ask you, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Do you think the protests were able to be as well attended, as extended, as long as they were? Like they were happening in a period of the pandemic where most people were still working from home. And so I always wondered if perhaps these murders had happened this time last year when a pandemic wasn't going on, if there would have been the ability to protest as much as there was this year. Yeah. Well, I, I also think, yes, like one people, I think people were physically able to participate in protests just because they weren't going into work from the morning until five. And that's why you see like millions of people turning out from early June until the end of the summer. And I think it's part of it. But I also think 2020 has been the year of exposing so much inequity. And we see right at the time as COVID starting and the summer peak of COVID, we're seeing that Black people are dying from COVID at rates way higher than any other group. And I think Black Lives Matter, was always been super great at doing, is really coming up with strategies and ways to talk about this type of pain and i think they they bring up often not just police brutality but also economic disinvestment um how black women are treated not just black men um sexism in the workplace etc they're always great at 
realizing that these issues are so interconnected and they affect not just black men, but they affect all of our lives and they especially affect almost every single member of the black community. And I think that's also an important part of Black Lives Matter is it's almost a a spiritual revival in a lot of ways. And people were able to participate in that in a time when maybe they wouldn't have had, or they had so much more time to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess if you want to, since, you know, you said Michael Brown and Eric Garner were a huge catalyst for the growth of this movement, maybe talking a little bit more about exactly what happened there. I mean, you said 2020 is kind of the second wave or the second phase of it. Would Where would you put Michael Brown and Eric Garner in the timeline of Black Lives Matter, the movement? Yeah. So I think I would say that they're responsible for one, the hashtag taking off. Um, mm-hmm. And also I think that, well, Trayvon Martin's case and George Zimmerman's case was publicized a lot. But it was, I think, one of the first cases in which you see police brutality happen and it's on the news for more than two seconds and maybe mm-hmm. perhaps the victim isn't blamed, which, or not as much, right? It's like, it's a weird, it's a new way to present this case. There's outrage at the other side mm-hmm. of this, as opposed to it being kind of like looked over or um, passed over as something that probably, you know, there must mm-hmm. be something else that went on. Yeah. And I think the same thing was happening in the 90s, right, with LA riots, etc. Except that the riots soon became classified by being these like disastrous riots that harmed people instead of really talking about the power that or the things that people were reacting to in the first place. And I think you see that this summer as well. But I think you also get more of the other side of the argument is the motivations behind protesting. And I think Mike Brown and Eric Garner are examples or their murders are kind of the first time in which we get more stories. We get a full trial in which there is not justice. Mm-hmm. And we see people all across the nation reacting to it under this new umbrella of Black Lives Matter. And such an assertive statement of saying that, yes, like these are human beings that are being harmed in these decisions and in these processes. And I think that's the first time that all of those assumptions, assertions are made. And then you see it reappear in 2020 again with the same force. The way you said, you know, justice wasn't served. That's really confused me about the situation. I mean, obviously, racism is Mm -hmm. a huge proponent for it. But like, had I broken into someone's house and just killed two people, or well, shot one and killed the other, I would be in jail there wouldn't be a question about it. So it's really, it's so confusing to me in these situations, how how it's not crystal clear that someone is in the wrong. Especially in today's age, there's so much video evidence. And I think that's another reason why both 2014 and 2020 especially blew up because it wasn't just, here's a story that happened. They could put the footage from people's cell phones on the news and you could relive it over and over again as it was, you know, the biggest headline of the week, the month, the summer. And I think like talking about just the huge level of injustice, and I think Black Lives Matter also, and eventually I think defund the police in more articulate terms, just because this is the whole point of their movement, really starts to get at like, the reason there isn't justice is there's a pervasive and huge problem with the justice system and with the police system as a whole. And that's like one diagnosis and then the next is that the way that black people are regarded in society 
there's something wrong with that. And I think like that's important to understand for the hashtag is that the fact that a group of people who make up a large portion of the country need to actually like assert that their lives matter. Like that in my mind is like a mind blowing thing that people shouldn't have to do, but they're continually doing it because clearly like there's examples every single day as to why their lives are not seen as important. And clearly because there even was a response from some people who are not like pro black lives matter or who have to combat that saying, well, don't all lives matter. Like that really shows that the hashtag is necessary in the sense that people are so actively against it, especially a large amount of our politicians used it as political cannon fodder against their opponents who were supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. So that wasn't really a question. That was just really to kind of, you know, agree with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like any social movement, like I think want people to assume that this all stopped after the civil rights movement because our history about anything related to non-white history is just horrible but secondly just enfranchising people and allowing them into your corrupt system is like not enough right yeah not ever taking a critical look at the historical legacies of our justice system of police officers who were originally there to be slave catchers like there's so much historical problems with all of these systems that just like can't be solved by making sure that a few people get justice like even if there was justice in all of these cases that's not enough i think just the constant release of videos and information i think it really got everyone's attention to say like how many more of these are there and how many of these would have been swept under the rug if video surveillance didn't come to light And I think that was really pivotal in helping gain so much traction. Yeah, and I think that's just like a broader example of how Black Lives Matter is really branching off into all of these different other movements. And I think some being more formalized, like Campaign Zero, which is like 10 concrete things to end police brutality and police reform and stuff like that. Um, And I also think just even smaller. I think what's so special is it's grassroots movements. So even just like small communities doing small cultural change surrounding these issues is super important. And I think something that maybe was not around in the 90s when the LA riots were happening, but maybe perhaps is happening today and increase, like you said, allyship, not even just with white Americans, but understanding that a lot of these identities and types of marginalization are so intersectional And everyone can benefit from pointing out injustice because it affects our life every day. I think something that you said, and it was kind of the point I was trying to get to with white allyship that I don't think I really explicitly stated was the fact that maybe white people thought like I personally am not racist and didn't know there was more to do from that. And what the 2020 Black Lives Matter did was really bring the term like anti-racism into play and show that just because you personally don't believe that you're a racist doesn't mean that you don't have some sort of internalized racism and it's not enough just to be not racist that there needs to be active anti-racism and I think that's what I was trying to get to and and didn't explicitly say yeah I, I like that reframing of allyship as being not just like a passive saying you're an ally but really there's an active role that you should be taking on if you call yourself an ally I like that a lot. And I think that's kind of a good way to kind of wrap up and kind of, I guess, hope is this year for me 
Uh, I've especially, at least it's been really refreshing for me to see so many people, especially during a pandemic when there's just so much hardship happening, that people have continually taken the time to put this at the forefront and really challenged institutions like defund the police, except like movements, etc. They've all really taken on these large historical institutions and just pointed out the injustice of them. And not only pointed out the injustice of them, but also showed that there's better systems out there and that these systems, if they remain in place, not only are just inequitable, but they also cause deep damage to people in communities. And so I think moving forward, I hope that we take a lot of the strategies from this summer and keep employing them and keep putting pressure on public officials, etc. Because just posting about Black Lives Matter and going to one protest is not enough to keep putting pressure on people. And as we've seen, a lot of these new police bills, they were really successful when there was millions of people on the streets. Mm-hmm. But now as public pressure is starting to kind of go away, we're seeing that they're being revoked or they're getting washed down a little bit. And I think for all of us, the fight kind of never ends. And that's an unfair burden on certain communities. But it's true. The fight never ends and you have to keep going. Yeah, I think part of what you're saying ties into, I mean, I think because of the pandemic, social media did become such a huge role in how people interacted with the Black Lives Matter movement. So I'm really excited for your question and kind of to have a discussion with you on how social media activism it can be good, how it can be bad. But yeah, Essence, thank you for a doing that work and bringing to light some like really important names and putting that all into perspective. I think we, you started to mention elements of defund the police kind of towards the end. And I, that will definitely be an episode in the future. So yeah, I, I think you're right. We kind of touched upon a lot of the things that I'm hoping that you'll give more insight on. Um, So my question for this week is what do you think about social media activism more broadly? And it doesn't just have to be black lives matter, but of course I'm sure that will come up. And do you think it can be powerful? And I think for me, I, as someone that does not really understand social media in a lot of ways, um, I'm very skeptical of activism through social media, but also realize that it's a powerful tool or it can be a powerful tool to reach younger people. And so I guess I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> yeah, we just talked about TikTok last week or in our last episode, that is. And how TikTok was is being used for a lot of activism in a lot of ways or sharing a lot of knowledge for educational reasons. It's not just a dance app, but I think their social media can be such a great resource for activism and for learning if you're interested in things like that. I think it can be a really easy cop-out for people as well. And I think that was really apparent in the Black Lives Matter movement. I think it also puts people... I don't want to say in a difficult position, that's kind of a weird way to frame it, but I think the example I'll use in order to kind of, and we can get into detail more about this, was the hashtag Blackout Tuesday, mm-hmm. where essentially you could post, the idea was to post a black, a black square with the hashtag Blackout Tuesday. And prior to Blackout Tuesday, there was a lot of information going out saying, make sure not to use the hashtag Black Lives Matter, because that ends up flooding the feed Black Lives Matter, which is supposed to be for educational purposes, and make sure you do X, Y, Z. And I remember thinking 
what is this doing in general? Like mm-hmm. this black square, we've had all these really great resources up to this point where people are posting links, they're posting information to various books, which is why I think, and I'm going to get into social media activism can be such a great resource, especially if you're wanting to learn more about things. This is just my own personal story regarding social media activism. I was seeing all my friends post these black squares and I was noticing my friends who weren't posting black squares. Mm-hmm. But I was worried if I'm noticing people who aren't po- like posting black squares or people noticing that I haven't posted one yet. Mm-hmm. And so I did end up posting one and I tried to include links for donations in them. So it wasn't just a black square. And I did have someone reach out to me who said that it's more, you know, virtue signaling. Can you please delete it? And I thank them for sharing. Mm-hmm. But I think that's something that kind of really highlights how detrimental it can be because then I saw a bunch of really famous influencers posting it as well. That, of course, is going to make their followers think they should post the hashtag Blackout Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And if a person who has millions of followers doesn't post that and a majority of their followers think that that's something they should be posting because they haven't been informed by others that it's kind of a form of virtue signaling, then their followers might assume they are like not being actively anti-racist, if that makes sense. And so that's kind of where I feel like we can get into this kind of nitpicky, what does it mean to have these like social media movements? So do you feel like, I don't know, I feel like when I hear, I feel like when I hear like these arguments of like which person is the most woke and like who's doing the most woke stuff, I always wonder, are these actual, like I at least for me, I mostly see white affluent people or people who are in privileged positions are usually the loudest voices to call out someone else that's not being woke enough yeah and i I guess like and i don't know if it's like i don't have a statistic on that it's just from my own (laughs) my own feed and i guess i just wonder do black at least for me personally i don't use social media and i don't know if black people care one way or the other if you post this or you don't post this yeah i think that's a really interesting topic for example um I have a white female friend on social media who is very into social justice. And over the summer, I actually heavily followed her stories because she frequently posted whether it was she followed a lot of other um, black run pages with information or pages like so you want to talk about, which would be very Mm -hmm. specific. And but she followed more pages than I did. So she would share a lot of resources to other pages that I could find. And so I ended up learning a ton more from and she was never saying like, you're not woke, be more woke. But it was kind of just like, here are some things she found interesting. Mm -hmm. And I personally loved that because sometimes you don't even know what you need to research. You know what I mean? So it would be a really interesting title that would catch my attention and I would have the opportunity to go and read through, which I might not have found otherwise. And those are ways I think, and she's not a person who has a ton of followers. Like she's not an influencer by any means. Mm -hmm. She's just someone who feels really passionate about the topic and give resources to her friends. Yeah. I think part of what was really great about Instagram is there were a lot of pages that people were able to follow And I think something that was really important that wouldn't have been possible without social media were, were, I don't want to call them a trend, but the black at blank pages Mm -hmm. that came out. And I thought those really were able to not just expose a lot of injustice that had been happening at schools, but the black at pages were a really nice way of saying just because nobody's 
just because you don't hear people in public spaces saying these things doesn't mean institutionalized racism, systematic racism, quieter racism in smaller friend groups isn't occurring. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. I think something, and I was going to bring this up, that I really loved about the Black Lives Matter movement this summer was the way people tried to connect with others. I was seeing the most interesting ways that people were creating posts. Do you know the love languages, like your five love languages? Mm Mm-hmm. There was a whole post that was like how you can contribute to the Black Lives Matter movement based on your love languages. And so like if yours was active service, instead of like necessarily going and contributing to the protest, you could make sandwiches for people protesting and give them out. Mm-hmm. Or like if it was gift giving, you could be um, distributing masks to, for, to help people cover their faces or you could be distributing signs you made. It was just really interesting that it wasn't just like you have to give money and you have to protest and you have to post something on social media. There were a lot of really creative ways people were trying to help other people get involved. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, if you have a large platform and a large access to capital or some type of ability to make change and you're not fully utilizing those resources, that's, that's a problem for me. No, exactly. But I think what social media activism has allowed people to do is not fully use all their resources, but people don't know you've donated money unless you share that you've donated money. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how many people donated money and didn't post about it? They posted about other things. How many people didn't donate money, but posted that they donated money? I don't know. I just think that's kind of a problem with activism that people are able to just post things and we take it at face value And some people are excused from doing more because they've posted things. Mm -hmm. I guess the only question that I have about like this line of argument is, I guess like that more applies to people who have a lot of sway in some way. But for Mm -hmm. like the average person that is participating in social media activism, I wonder, I guess I wonder if, there's just more productive ways to use people power in general. Like, do you think there's actual tangible results besides, I think the thing you've mentioned is like education and showing people other ways to contribute, but like social movements didn't really utilize this in 1960. Mm -hmm. Well, I more think, I think I'm more arguing that it just seems like it's an encouraging, it's encouraging a different type of activism. Mm-hmm. that isn't like that kind of maybe even reinforces the reason why there isn't change in the first place. Like mm-hmm. it points people to resources, which is a very individualized way to go about making change. Right. It's not like people gathering and like doing a sit in or it's not people challenging or like physically going to an institution and challenging it. It's like people individually choosing the best way that they can make change, which I'm not, making an argument that's worse or better but it seems like it's the same perhaps we're maybe in these situations because we're so hyper individualized in the first place yeah and like that empathy building isn't actually happening I think I think that's a really fair point and I'm not really sure what the way to fix that is I think like from social media activism is it did introduce so many people to the pervasive issues of of systemic racism that I don't think it has fallen away that it has in the past, if that makes sense. 
Like people are still talking about it. People are still posting about it. They're still in the news in regards to the election. It was something that was constantly brought up. Mm-hmm. And so I think hopefully when the pandemic ends, we do see a way for it to become more communal. That makes sense. Yeah. I think one way to end it would be just like beyond Black Lives Matter. And I know other movements like Me Too, for example, have utilized social media activism a lot. Um, and kind of where do you hope, what do you think is a good path forward for social media activism? I think I think a good path forward is kind of what we talked about at the end. I think A, especially white listeners, white individuals need to continue educating themselves, stop relying on people of color, just going to them and saying, hey, what's up with racism? Like, please tell me about it. And I think that was something that was really nice about social media activism. You could go and you could look at so you want to talk about or what other. And that's the one I mainly saw. And I saw other people reposting, which is why I'm using. And they have really great information and like infographics. So would recommend if you're looking for just like one account at least to follow to continue educating themselves. But I think we do need to figure out as a community how, when the pandemic ends, to make more lasting change. And Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's going to come in the direction of defund the police. I just think the danger of social media is that like you don't have to interact with anything if you don't want to. And people can choose to not interact with anything and then their feeds are also curated by what they choose to look at Mm -hmm. so if you're choosing never to engage with something like that you're not going to see it because that's how the algorithm kind of works and do you think that that was super different though in like 1960 like if i lived in an all-white community do you think i would ever have to like to engage in any of those conversations i guess i'm just not seeing the difference between being in your echo chamber pre-social media and being in your echo chamber post it I guess to summarize some of the issues that go along with social media activism, just because it's a different platform doesn't mean it has, it lacks any of the downfalls we saw when we talked about white kids only attending school with white kids like we did in the first episode, where you're not necessarily forced to look outside your bubble because most of these social media apps have an algorithm that reinforce what you want to see. If you're liking the pages that are going to introduce you to new information and different things, you're going to continue to get access to that information. If you continue to follow resources that just reinforce what you already believe, then you're not going to necessarily think to question your beliefs or learn anything new. And to summarize the other two points, virtue signaling is obviously something that's dangerous because it gives makes people feel like because they've done the bare minimum that they've done something mm-hmm. and if we've learned anything as white people from the black lives matter movement it's that it's not enough to be anti-racist for a month or for two months like you have to consistently and actively obviously actively be anti-racist for the rest of our lives and so virtue signaling is just kind of a cop-out and i think it's more important to hold someone accountable for virtue signaling than it is to call someone out who is trying to grow, which kind of gets back to my cancel culture um, reference, which I think would be an interesting thing to do in an episode, maybe on the future. But cancel culture, I think, makes people more afraid to like have conversations 
because they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing and be, quote, canceled, as opposed to having a conversation that might really help them grow. People grew up in different circumstances. We're taught different things. We have such a diverse population. And just because someone learned something that was not true or shouldn't be said doesn't mean that they can't unlearn it. And it means a lot more that someone makes the effort to grow and become a better person and a more actively anti-racist person than the fact that they made a mistake or didn't know something was wrong to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something we can all do is become A, more understanding and B, really help each other grow and C, forgive each other when we make mistakes. Learning how not only to tell someone that they've done something that is maybe offensive or shouldn't be done, or is not okay to say, it's really important to be to learn how to say that in a productive way. To attack someone is not going to help them stop saying it. Or our biggest takeaway, I should say, the biggest takeaway, I think if any of our white listeners are trying to look for one, we're going to mess up. It's okay. The best thing you can do is thank the person who feels comfortable enough with you to talk to you that you're doing something and accept that you've done it and try to move on and be better from here on out. Don't harp all over it. Don't white guilt yourself. <laughs> it's not oh, making that a verb. Oh my God. Let's make it a verb. <laughs> but, but that's a thing, right? Like that's something I've had to say that like, okay, put that aside. <laughs> I can do better and like move forward. So I hope if no one, if you took nothing else away from that, or you didn't agree with anything else we had to say, you can at least agree with the fact that we can make mistakes, accept it, and try to be better people going forward. I like that. All right. Thank you guys. <laughs> Again. Oh, Essence. Essence coughed. I'm um, sorry. Put that away. We're in a pandemic. I'm All right. Myself, don't worry. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. I know it was probably one of our more dense episodes that we've done and definitely more current, I think. So again, if you would like to hear more about these topics, if you have any thoughts or would like to even share your thoughts with our other listeners, which I mean, we're on episode six, so there might be seven of us, but (laughs) um, we will definitely do that. So Look out for our next episode, which is going to be hashtag self-care in the squad, where we'll be talking about what self-care is, why it seems like a luxury for many, but also Essence and my, some of our favorite people who make up the squad in the House of Representatives. So yeah, tune in, reach out to us if you'd like at the common room couch at gmail. Wait, no, hold on. That's not how an email works. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, at the and then type our email. <laughs> Go to gmail.com and type us in. <laughs> um, you can email us at thecommonroomcouch at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on social media. But overall, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for becoming part of the conversation. Um, remember to check out the description below for any information and resources that Essence and I use. And bye.